and welcome. I'm Molly McCann Sanders, and you are listening to my podcast, Bravado. Just a quick reminder, you can always subscribe to receive the show notes whenever I publish a new podcast episode at www.bravadopodcast.substack.com. And that will tell you when a new episode is published, and it will also give you the show notes with links to anything I refer to during the show and sometimes some of the background articles that I use to prep for the show. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, and we are talking about what everyone else is talking about this week, and that is the Silicon Valley Bank implosion. Now, I know most of you are consuming a significant amount of conservative media, so you're probably uh, up to speed on a lot of this. But I want to touch briefly on the points that I'm noticing or kind of pull together a lot of the points that I think are being made here and there and should be placed in, in one spot. The first thing I would just note is if you have friends and family who only read mainstream news, even if it's more conservative mainstream news like the Wall Street Journal, if they only read the Wall Street Journal or they only watch their local TV station or, God forbid, CNN or MSNBC or something, they're hearing a very positive spin with respect to SVB the bank and the management of the bank and how this disaster came about. I guess I shouldn't be shocked. I was irritated on Monday to read the Wall Street Journal's opening headline article on the Silicon Valley Bank, and they painted a very sympathetic picture of SVB. And that was very evident from this paragraph where the journal said, the culprit wasn't the kind of exotic derivatives and risk-taking that doomed banks in the 2008 financial crisis. Rather, it was a mismatch between deposits and assets, the building blocks of the vanilla business of commercial banking. So that's just a reminder that the Wall Street Journal, certainly in its new section, leans left. Its op-ed section is a little more conservative. But obviously, we all are aware that that is simply not the case. Multiple analysts have described the risky, or frankly, just stupid, approach that the bank management at SVB took. Only 11% of the deposits were insured. Both their clients' companies, which are a lot of these venture capitalist firms and a lot of these startups in Silicon Valley, and the bank's investments, where they were storing a lot of the money that they were receiving, their deposits, were in assets that are highly susceptible to rising interest rates. And of course, for the past year and a half, interest rates have been going up, and it hasn't been a secret. We've all known the Fed has made it very clear that the rate hikes will continue, and this is this has been completely foreseeable. And yet SVB did nothing to diversify that risk. So obviously the collapse that they experienced is a little more complicated than that, but the mismanagement within the bank is very, very clear. I think Steve Bannon, I haven't been able to listen as much of War Room this week as I'd like, But I definitely tuned in briefly at some point and heard him refer to this as more of a hedge fund than a bank. And I think that sums it up very well. Obviously, a talking point amongst conservative news outlets is the bank's commitment to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the question sort of looms heavy whether that had anything to do with this horrific mismanagement. I really don't know. I think it certainly plays into my lack of sympathy about bailing them out when they've acted in such a very risky manner, and they are sort of the bank for a lot of people who hate us. And again, going back, I think it's both Bannon and Tucker Carlson have made this point. It's like a mixture of socialism and capitalism, where they take the risks, and if they succeed, they profit personally. And if they fail, 
we pay it off for them, socialism. You know, the, the American taxpayer comes in and bails them out. So there's really no risk there. They win or they win. And that's just grossly unjust, particularly when this bank has been so committed to DEI, has lobbied not to be regulated so that it can do some of these wild things, has donated eye-watering sums to causes like Black Lives Matter for the FDIC to break the rules and save them is absolutely outrageous. As I say, whether DEI is the reason they are making dumb moves, I could not say I don't know enough about the bank. But just be aware, if you've been busy, if you haven't dialed into conservative media yet, just be aware that SVB should not be bailed out. And this wasn't just an oops, could have happened to the best of us. This was terrible, terrible management. In fact, although the news section of the Wall Street Journal is sort of worthless at times, the op-ed section had a couple of great pieces, and I'm going to put those in the show notes. And one of them is a very short little op-ed that just runs through like the top three mistakes that the bank made in the course of uh, before and during the meltdown that that brought about its complete demise. It's very quick. It doesn't have a lot of editorializing, I don't think. And it's very helpful to get a quick overview of the situation. So I'll link that in the show notes. And then Vivek Ramaswamy, whose ill-fated decision to run for president I do not support, but who analyzes these sorts of woke capital issues very, very well. He also has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I'll link to that as well. And I think once you read those few things, you really will get a great picture of what happened here in addition to whatever other conservative media you are consuming. But let's also talk about the political ramifications for you, for us, from this financial meltdown and this bailout. The first one is obviously we, the taxpayer, are paying to bail this leftist woke bank out. And that's just unjust and it's unsustainable. Financially, it's unsustainable and it has all sorts of waterfall effects that are very, very damaging for ordinary Americans. I'm very disturbed at how this is driving the consolidation of banks towards the giants. Immediately, multiple commentators pointed out that when the government says, we will ensure, we will bail out those banks that are systemically necessary, too big to fail, etc. You create a two-tiered system where you have the major banks that are too big to fail, and you can always be sure your money will be safe there because the government will come and bail them out, whether they're insured or not. And then all the other little banks where your money could just disappear if that bank failed and there was a run on that bank. And that's a problem, particularly in this time when we want to localize more and more. When you see the giant banks canceling people, like after January 6th, several of Donald Trump's accounts were canceled at various banks. I know that other major conservative figures who have fought the good fight on election integrity, like Sidney Powell and Mike Lindell, they've been canceled by various banks. My husband and I, we're trying to slowly move from Bank of America to a local bank to get our money and put it with someone who isn't going to attack us for our values. When you see your loved ones and you see the people you support, like Donald Trump or Sidney Powell or Mike Lindell, when you see them targeted, obviously that makes my blood boil and I want to take my business elsewhere. And so now we have this two-tiered system where those secondary, smaller, more regional banks are not as safe or you might worry more about your money in those places. So it's very pernicious in the sense of it's driving us all to move back towards the major banks 
where we can be sure that our money will be secure. For the moment, I'm sticking with my, my regional bank. I'm not moving back to Bank of America. I still have accounts at Bank of America, but slowly we're trying to move over to the smaller bank. And there are even people who think that this consolidation of banks is actually deliberate. And this is this is an idea that has been floated from people as diverse as Alex Jones on his InfoWars show to Tucker Carlson on Fox News and everyone in, be- in between. I've seen a lot of comments about this on Twitter from a lot of different political commentators and just opinion people. And that is that the federal government wanted there to be a run on the smaller banks. They wanted to create a panic that would start to drive people toward consolidation. And the theory, both from Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson and everyone in between, is that the government wants to bring about the central bank digital currency. And that will really centralize control over our money system in the hands of the government. And this is extremely alarming, but I think that there's very good evidence to suggest that is exactly what is going on. It's been reported that Silicon Valley Bank had a buyer which could have averted a lot of this disaster, and yet the government jumped in there before that deal could be finalized and closed it and made it a big drama and created the panic. So that's that's one element of it. And we certainly just know that the Fed is already sort of doing a soft test on digital currency, And we know that the globalists and our leaders who hate America and hate freedom, frankly, and would like to consolidate their power and rule over us as overlords and all of the rest of us serfs, we know that this is just the type of power that they would love to have. And we can see that, again, from the sorts of activities we saw after January 6th, where they cracked down on banks and money. They cracked down on people's ability to communicate. They ended Shopify platforms and the like. They want the ability to silence you immediately from a central position if they don't agree with your politics. And other more totalitarian states around the world are already moving toward these digital currencies under the guise that they're more helpful and they're easier. And again, I've talked before about how technology is wonderful, but it can also be one of the worst threats to freedom and liberty imaginable. And moving toward a central bank digital currency would be an absolute disaster. I think it was Tucker Carlson who was noting that these bailouts are not free. When the government bails out the banks, they get something in return. In 2008, Barack Obama bailed out the banks, and in return, he got widespread diversity, equity, and inclusion implemented into the system. And now the hypothesis is that the balance due will be central bank digital currency. I think that's the key to watch in all of this disaster is that central bank digital currency and that we do not want it, we will not accept it, and we have to fight it. And it's just, it's exhausting how these globalists just keep coming. They, they create disasters and then they have the solution to the disaster. And the solution is always Americans giving up more freedom and more liberty and the elite globalists getting more power and more control and more ability to tell us how to live our lives. And so if there's one thing to focus on in all of this, it is that political point that we simply will not accept and we will fight to the bitter end. And I encourage you to fight against that and to warn family, friends, and to be active in watching for that next move. Finally, the final point that I thought was interesting coming out of all of this politically was a little issue with speech. 
Representative Thomas Massey said he was on a call with the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, a bunch of different congressmen and senators and their staff. I think it was approximately 200 people on the call. And one of the Democrat representatives, I think it was actually Mark Kelly, asked about asked whether there was a plan in place to censor speech on social media so as not to create bank runs in the future. And I saw that talking point pop up again in this same Wall Street Journal article from which I quoted at the beginning of the show. In the midst of reporting about the implosion, the Wall Street Journal said, Social media, which hadn't been a factor during the last banking crisis, pained both fact and fiction around the world at lightning speed. Spooked customers whipped out their phones and opened their banking apps. With a few taps, their money was on its way. So just one small paragraph in a relatively long article, but it plants that little seed. Social media and the information and misinformation that was spread on social media about the banking collapse contributed to a global panic or national global panic that contributed to the run on the bank and the implosion of the bank. And then we hear about how Mark Kelly and various Democrats are talking about how to further censor speech on social media so we can't talk about this, so we can't know about it, and somehow that's going to make us all safer and make the financial institutions safer. Just goes to show the left's response is always, let's censor. Let's censor more and more and more. Let's micromanage and tell everyone else how to behave and how to operate. And it's kind of disgusting. But the big thing to take away from this is SVB is certainly not some unfortunate bank that just happened on hard times. Terrible, terrible mismanagement. Now the American taxpayer is going to bail out the wealthy elites, many of whom are woke and funding the apparatus that seeks to destroy us. And the left will either manufactured this crisis or will use this crisis to bring about central bank digital currency. And that's what we have to fight. That's the end of this story is the action item, fight central bank digital currency. Be aware of it, study up on it, tell your friends and family, and say no. Okay, let's do a quick legal update. Uh, This one has to do with speech as well. Yesterday, a trial began in the prosecution of a young man named Douglas Mackey. Some of you may have heard of this, but I suspect a lot of you haven't. Mackey is now about 33 or 34 years old. He was a meme maker back in 2016. He created a lot of different memes. I I had never heard of him. I didn't know about him in 2016. I didn't follow him. I think he had about 50,000 followers on, on Twitter. And he created very popular memes, though, that a lot of people found very funny. Several of them, or at least one of them, had to do with voting, in which he said, and I can put this picture in the show notes as well, it was a picture of Hillary. Again, this was the 2016 election cycle. And it was telling Hillary voters that they could vote by text or tweet. So tweet Hillary 2016 or text Hillary 2016 to this or that. Make your voice heard. You don't have to go to the polls. Paid for by Hillary Clinton, etc., etc. I think most people looked at that and understood that it was just a more intense version of a lot of the different jokes you see where people are trying to say the other side should vote at a different time. Like I think in 2020, you saw that a lot. You'd see Democrats vote Tuesday, Republicans vote Wednesday or flipped. Republicans vote Tuesday, Democrats vote Wednesday. And the ha-ha is obviously you can't vote on the day after the election. Uh, So he had this meme that was 2016. And in 2020, 
2020 or 2021, after we lost the election and Biden was installed, the Department of Justice decided to prosecute this young man. uh, And they brought prosecution under 18 U.S.C. Section 241, which criminalizes conspiracies to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any privilege secured to him by the U.S. Constitution. And here, that privilege is, of course, the right to vote. So this is outrageous on a number of levels, and it's a very scary precedent in terms of our speech rights and our political speech rights. Eugene Volokh, who you may or may not be familiar with if you're someone who's really into the legal world, you certainly know who he is, but uh, he's a professor and he specializes in speech. I think he leans libertarian, but he has an excellent article from, I think, 2021. Again, I'll link it in the show notes. And he walks through how problematic this prosecution is and how worrisome it is to free speech and political speech in America. He goes down to the state level and he talks about state court cases where people have been prosecuted for lying or deception or or this type of, quote, election interference and points out that there's a very fine line sometimes between fact and opinion. And Ultimately, he he shows how sometimes these laws are upheld as constitutional, sometimes they're not, but they certainly need to be very narrowly tailored and dial in just on the particular activity at issue. So if you're going to prosecute someone for making a meme about the election, the statute needs to be really focused on that type of activity. And as he points out, there's no narrow federal statute on point. And the statute that the DOJ is using, this 18 U.S.C. 241, is certainly not a narrow statute. Valak points out that it's not clear the statute covers deception at all. And if it does, there's really no limiting principle. There's no limiting principle to this. I'll read it again. It criminalizes conspiracies to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any privilege secured to him by the U.S. Constitution. So... This young man, his case has not gotten a lot of traction. I would encourage you to dial in and pay attention to it if you're interested in speech issues. I will link uh, the excellent Volokh piece in my Bravado substack for you to read. And let's just see how this plays out. I'm very hopeful that ultimately uh, this young man will be vindicated, hopefully at the district court level, but if not, somewhere up the appeals chain. But in the meantime, it's just eating up his life. He's 33 or 34 now. He was charged two years ago on for conduct that happened four years before that. And we, we've discussed before on this show how draining and grueling it is to be prosecuted by the federal government, uh, particularly on something like this that's so abusive and so out there. And it just underscores again how off the rails our government has become, our DOJ, our court system, that this kind of prosecution can be brought in America, that they can twist a federal statute and with a straight face bring it before a court and it's not thrown out immediately. That they would bring it at all to begin with is just disgustingly un-American. That the court didn't throw it out and this is going to trial, what you know, trial started yesterday is even more outrageous.
And the action item here, in my mind, is the need for more conservatives to speak up and object and complain when federal statutes are abused, when these sort of, especially these older statutes that were made for one purpose and are now being imported into 2023 and used to prosecute political opponents. And they're so obviously not really on point. They're so broad and subject to abuse. We need to be more vocal about demanding that kind of activity stop. And we need to, we really do need to pare down the criminal legal system. Sidney Powell has a book that was published just a few years ago called Conviction Machine. I know it well because I helped proof it. I read it several times in the proofing process. And it's really excellent. And it dials in and talks about this kind of the abuse of the system, too many federal criminal statutes applied ambiguously or abusively. And uh, it's it's a good read. She co-authored it with a longtime defense lawyer, but highly recommend that read if you're interested in this sort of thing. But I'm going to be keeping an eye on this case. Again, the young man's name is Douglas Mackey, and it is a significant political speech case. And uh, again, a, a case about whether or not we will be free people or we will be under the boot of a corrupt Department of Justice. All right, let's close today with a quick mailbag. Someone says, were you surprised by any of the J6 footage on Tucker? Uh, I was not surprised really by, well, I was, I mean, I was a little surprised by some of the Jacob Chansley footage, just the fact that they were, that they were ushering him around the building and that he said those prayers. I knew that Chansley was, I knew that the narrative about Chansley was ridiculous. I knew that he wasn't a threat. I did know that he wasn't attacking any of the police officers because we did have a very brief clip of him when he entered the Senate chamber and we've had it all along and he just walks right in and there's an officer who kind of wanders in behind him and there's just no tension between the two of them. So to see all of the footage that led up to that and see how they were very amicable and literally showing him around and helping him find the Senate chamber, that's pretty shocking, but it's also... Not as shocking as I think it is for some Americans who just don't have a sympathetic view of um, of January 6th. And by sympathetic view, I just mean realistic. It was not an armed insurrection that threatened our democratic republic. It was a riot, and a lot of the people were showmen or eccentric or just there to peek about. What did upset me about the footage on Tucker was that we didn't get more of it. I know a lot of you feel the same way. It's very clear that Tucker was and is under an enormous amount of pressure from the Fox network not to air anymore. As you saw, both the left and the right came out and decried the dissemination of this footage, which is pretty rich if you think about what they're actually saying. We're we're not allowed to see the footage. We shouldn't get to know what actually happened. We should just believe their narrative, and that should be the end of it. The Uniparty was out in force. And that's what I was concerned with from the start. I think I tweeted about this, but I said, I like Tucker, and he did a wonderful job of presenting that first night. But at the end of the day, he works for Fox News, and we know what that means. So I'm hopeful that he will be able to air more of that footage. And if not, I hope it's released to the public in full very, very quickly. Someone else asks, is the tide changing in Ukraine? Uh, it certainly is. And I we talked about that on the last podcast, I believe, where I noted that the Wall Street Journal had that piece on the front page and they talked about the corruption issues in Ukraine. And I said, put a pin in it. This is the first tip of the hat 
that the tide is absolutely changing on Ukraine and on Zelensky. And I think that's obviously developing quickly. Politico had an article about it in the last two days or something about the growing dissatisfaction with Zelensky and with the war in Ukraine. And I think a lot of that has to do with the American people are tiring of it, but there could be other reasons as well. But yes, I do think the tide is changing on Ukraine. Cannot happen fast enough, in my opinion. Someone said, is the success of Trump's song a good sign? Well, hopefully, first of all, you all have heard of Trump's new song. Uh, Cash Patel put it out. It's called Justice for All. It's a song by Donald Trump and the J6 Prison Choir. And as you probably know, the January 6 prisoners, every night they sing the national anthem. And someone was able to record that. And then they had Donald Trump record the Pledge of Allegiance. And they went to a studio and they melded the two together and they released it on all of the major audio platforms. And that single leapt to number one. So do I think the success of that song is a good sign? Absolutely. I think it's a good reminder that America is full of very patriotic people, just like everyone listening to this show. It's full of people who are paying attention, who care, who want to save this country. Not everyone is as active as they should be, or I think I think it's actually more than that. I don't think it's not everyone's as active as they should be. I think it's they don't know where and how to be as active as they want to be. But they're out there paying attention, loving this country, and wanting to save her. And so seeing the success of that single should be a source of hope and camaraderie to you that there are other people out there. Uh, We are not alone. We won the 2020 election. That win represented people. That win represented other Americans who still believe in the American dream and believe in this country. And we need to find them and band together and figure out how to be more active on the grassroots level so we can save our country. Okay, I think that's about it for today. I am going to try to be more regular about getting this podcast out. I know in the last month it really has faltered. I'm in my third trimester and energy is sometimes just not there. (laughs) We also have some construction that makes it very hard for me to record the podcast uh, during the day. So the combination of having to record in the evening when I'm already pretty out of gas has been has been a very bad combo. But I will renew my energy here and try to be more regular about getting the podcast out. In the meantime, you can always follow me on Twitter at Mal McCann, on Instagram at Mal.McCann. I'm very active on both those platforms. I'm also on Getter and Truth Social at Mal McCann. And you can sign up for my Substack, the Molly McCann Memo, and the Bravado show notes to stay in the loop and get any information that I'm sharing when energy levels spike. So again, thank you very much for listening to the show. Thank you for sharing it with your friends and family. I hope to be chatting with you here again very soon. I'm Molly McCann Sanders, and you're listening to Bravado. Bravado.